0: a serious injury or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by Docketwise, an all in one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, This show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It seems that the circus decided to join the rest of the country in our unofficial semi-relaxation during the period between Christmas and New Year's. Not even really two cases this week, and I certainly appreciate the rest. I hope all the appellate judges did too. Still some decisions to discuss, but I'll keep it short and sweet. Welcome to 2022. May it be better than the last. First is Brito v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on December 28, 2021. I got a bit of weird news for all you First Circuit practitioners out there. In this 45-page decision, the court has vacated the ACLU and others' hard-fought bond injunction in Brito v. Barr. Well, kind of. And because the reasoning is really complicated and depends mostly on jurisdiction and standing issues, I'll just get to the point. Most importantly to removal defense practitioners, the First Circuit affirmed that under the U.S. Constitution, quote, in order to detain a person under INA Section 236A, the government must either prove by clear and convincing evidence that the person is a danger to the community, or prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the person is a flight risk, end quote. Put another way, quote, the government must bear the burden of proof in a bond hearing, end quote at least for regular non-mandatory detention bond cases. So that's big news, and congrats First Circuit practitioners. It would appear to me that this favorable burden-shifting framework remains the case in bond proceedings throughout the First Circuit. After all, of course, DHS and the immigration courts can't violate the Constitution in the First Circuit. That being said, the court vacated the prior class-wide injunction, holding that the district court lacked jurisdiction to grant class-wide injunctive relief under INA Section 242-F. So the district court's injunction requiring such hearings is no longer in place. As I mentioned, the decision relies on a complicated analysis based in jurisdiction and standing. And quite frankly, the court may have had in mind the fact that the Supreme Court seems poised to reach a similar holding regarding nationwide immigration injunctions and INA Section 242F this term in Garland v. Gonzalez. Just reading the tea leaves. And so in that sense, maybe the First Circuit just protected the district court's substantive decision brilliantly. Again, And. Feel free to email me if I'm wrong, but after this First Circuit decision, it remains the case in the Circuit that, quote, if the government refuses to offer a release subject to bond to a non-citizen detained pursuant to INA Section 236A, it must either prove by clear and convincing evidence that the non-citizen is dangerous, or prove by preponderance of the evidence that the non-citizen poses a flight risk, end quote. The government still has the burden and that holding is now no longer tethered to whether district courts enjoy authority to enjoin DHS in the immigration courts, class or nationwide. A holding that, if it had been made, might not survive this current Supreme Court term. So, it seems to me that, injunction notwithstanding, DHS and the immigration courts in the First Circuit must still follow the First Circuit's mandate to hold regular bond hearings and put the burden on DHS. Unless I'm missing something, I say celebrations are in order for Respondent's Council in New England. And Puerto Rico too, of course. And that is Brito v. Garland. The final case this week is Boggle v. Garland, But the Ninth Circuit already published this decision on June 23, 2021, discussed on episode 61 of the podcast. At the time, it was an interesting, if adverse to non-citizens, decision, and it remains so now. It looks like this new, current decision isn't really new at all. The Ninth Circuit panel doesn't appear to have changed much, if anything. The court has denied motions for both panel and en banc hearing, and reissued the 54-pager. Therefore, as nothing appears to have substantively changed, I'm going to give myself an end-of-the-year break and republish my summary from June. Check out episode 61, though, in its entirety while you're here. It had a lot of good cases and a BIA decision similar to Boggle, with a relevant footnote. Happy New Year's, everyone. Here's the Boggle summary from June. In this case, the Ninth Circuit analyzed the personal use exception in INA Section 237A2BI and held that it requires the circumstance-specific approach the very issue that the BIA mentioned in that footnote I just discussed, and on the exact same day to boot. It doesn't get much more exciting for a case law nerd like the one that I've become. Judge Pearson dissented in this very complicated 54-pager. Mr. Boggle is from Jamaica and became a lawful permanent resident in 2010. However, he later obtained a conviction under Georgia Code section 16-13-2a, pursuant to a, quote, conditional discharge, end quote, which meant that once Mr. Bogle completed his probation, he did not obtain a conviction under Georgia law. But immigration law is a pain in the matter of but, and the definition of a conviction is not governed by Georgia law, but rather is governed by INA section 101A48. And a drug conviction that satisfies INA Section 237A2BI will make an LPI removable unless the conviction is a, quote, single offense involving possession for one's own use of 30 grams or less of marijuana, End quote. Now, Mr. Bogle pled guilty under a Georgia statute that criminalizes possession of more than one ounce of marijuana. An ounce of marijuana is 28.5 grams, so says the decision. So, if the plea agreement is what governs and the categorical approach applies, Mr. Bogle isn't removable. But the police report in the case states that, in fact, Mr. Bogle possessed 47.12 ounces of marijuana, equating to 1,335.852 grams of marijuana. But who's counting? If the circumstance specific approach governs the inquiry, thereby allowing an IJ to review that police report, Mr. Bogle is in trouble. And it does, and he is. First, the Ninth Circuit held that yes, the Georgia offense is a conviction under immigration law, even though it's not a conviction under Georgia law. This is because even though there was never a, quote, formal adjudication of guilt, end quote, Mr. Bogle did plead guilty, and the criminal judge did order some form of punishment, namely, four years probation with the, quote, first 16 days to be served in confinement, end quote that satisfies INA Section 101A48's definition of a conviction. But heads up, it may be an open question whether mere probation without that 16-day confinement would so qualify. Don't assume anything. Turning then to the 30-gram or less exception, the Ninth Circuit deferred to BIA precedent and agreed with other circuit decisions holding that the circumstance-specific approach governs the inquiry. And it also held, like the BIA kind of just did, that the Supreme Court's decision in Malouli v. Lynch did not alter that prior case law. While Malouli in 2015 held that INA Section 237A2BI is governed by the categorical approach, it did not, apparently, hold that the statute's 30-gram or less exception is so governed. And that's what's at issue here. Because the circumstance-specific approach applies, the court is not limited to merely the elements of the crime, as the categorical and modified categorical approach would require, but instead can look to the, quote, conduct involved in, end quote, the crime, potentially opening up the door to any evidence deemed reliable and fundamentally fair. Here, the evidence showed that Mr. Bogle possessed well over 30 grams, particularly as he never explicitly challenged the accuracy of the police report's reference to that amount of marijuana, and kind of, quote, essentially admitted to it, end quote, during his in-court testimony. DHS therefore met its burden to show, by clear and convincing evidence, that Mr. Bogle was removable for having possessed more than 30 grams, and held that indeed Mr. Bogle is removable. Gonna dive back into the Pareto issue. So Mr. Bogle lost, but there was a bit of a favorable holding from the majority in my opinion. In a footnote, and in an effort to combat the dissent, the majority makes clear that Pareta was indeed all about the factual inquiry of what Mr. Pareto was actually convicted of in the unique situation where you're at the relief stage and neither party has produced the conviction documents. Because the conviction documents were produced in the case here, quote, we can move on to the second inquiry, end quote. But that same logic might be much more favorable if it was the categorical approach that governed rather than the circumstance specific approach, as the court's reliance on Moncree V holder seems to apply, and as is the case with most criminal INA provisions. It seems to me, based on Pareta itself and the logic in this footnote, that it does remain a completely open question. How will the legal burdens be applied at the relief stage when the categorical approach is the governing framework? All of the conviction documents have been produced, but the legal inquiry remains unclear. And that is Bogle v. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.